0: Amen. Amen. Good to be with you guys today at Brigham City. My name is Ross Anderson. I'm one of our teaching pastors. And as a team, we prepare these messages for you guys. Um, and we've been doing the Ten Commandments, right? So to, to kick off this, this is our last week in the Ten Commandments. To kind of think about this, I, I remember when my kids were little, and I, I wonder if you had this same kind of experience. Like when your children were toddlers, if you've had kids, you know, you could put all the toddlers in a room with a bunch of toys. Maybe it's a play date or something like that. And I remember my son, it could have been any of your kids, right, is playing with something and there's a couple other toys nearby. Kind of, he's not really interested in them. He's not really playing with them until another kid comes over, right? Another kid comes over and starts to be interested in that toy that my son's not even playing with and suddenly he's very interested in that toy, very possessive of that, of that toy. He doesn't want to give it up. You know, He doesn't want anybody else uh, to have it. It didn't matter... To him until it mattered to somebody else. And you know, but that's not just him. I mean, kids, kids are, are like that. And it's funny how we can really learn a lot about life from looking at our kids because what's going on in that room in that moment is an application of the 10th commandment. Okay, so here we are today at the very end of our series on this, the 10 commandments. And we're not, we're not saying that you should have mastered any of these by now, right? We're all growing. We're all work in progress. But hopefully we are growing in these principles for life. And here's the thing, that when you find yourself blowing it in any of these things, then we hope that you'll come running back to the grace of God and back to the mercy of God and and allow him to to get you going again and and just calling upon his strength and his mercy. But uh, because remember... We said at the very beginning that the commandments of God are a reflection of the heart of God. That the reason God gave us these principles for life is because he cares about us. He wants us to thrive and live a flourishing life. And this is the God, remember, who rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And then He, when he had done that, he gave them this way to live, this new society, these, these uh this framework for a rich and satisfying life. And so he wants to follow, he wants us to follow his commands so that we can have uh, a better life. And so today, we're actually gonna end the series with the 10th commandment is a very unique commandment because it's not focused on anything that we do. It's not focused on, you know, don't do this or don't take this action, but it's really focused on our thoughts and our desires, And so the 10th commandment is about coveting. Now, that's not a word that we use in everyday conversation. So I don't know how many times you've used the word covet in your life, you know. So let me just explain briefly what that means. It means when you want something that belongs to somebody else. When I want something that belongs to somebody else, or the corollary to that is when we live our lives unhappy because we don't really like what God has given us. We're unhappy with what he's given to us. And so th- those are two sides of the coin. And if you look at it in the thesaurus, you'll see the word coveting shows up near other words like envy or lust after or crave. And so that's kind of the idea that we're talking about in the 10th commandment. Now that may not seem like that big of a deal to you because it's not taking away anybody's loss of life or or some of the big consequences of some of the other commandments. But it, it, it really when We're going to see today as we dig into it that it really is an important principle, really important idea. In fact, the Apostle Paul tells us that in his experience, it was the 10th commandment that taught him that he was really a sinner. And so um, what happened was that uh, he presumably, we know he grew up in a Jewish family, a religious family. So presumably as a boy, he'd grown up with all the Ten Commandments and uh, probably had a, a, obeyed the first nine of them. But the Tenth Commandment taught him that desires also are sinful, even if you don't act on them. And so they taught him that, that sin isn't just about outward actions, but we disobey all God all the time, right? In our thoughts, and our motives, and our, our desires, our attitudes. And so as Paul wrote the New Testament, he, he described how he became aware of his own envy and his ungratefulness and his malice. And then, then he realized that he was violating the 10th commandment. So let's take a look at it with that in mind. Here it is in Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. Says, you must not covet your neighbor's house, You must not covet your neighbor's wife, male or female servant, ox or donkey, or anything else that belongs to your neighbor. Now again, this commandment was really uh, unique in the ancient world. If you look at all of the ancient religious and, and legal texts from the whole world around Israel, there's nothing quite like this at all. Why? Because this speaks to the intentions of our heart. Versus just actions. And so how can a law prohibit what goes on inside your head? No, no human law can do that. But God's law can do that because God knows the intentions of our heart. And he holds us accountable for those things. And so the desire then, what that means is the desire for an action uh, makes us just as guilty as the action itself. When you wish you could do have something but you don't, then that's a violation of the 10th commandment if I, I wish i could have their house you know i wish i could have his wife then then that's just as much a violation as if you never act on it at all and so when that idea really sinks in you know that that kind of hits all of us and so we come to Uh, the 10th commandment, and I wonder if this is why, maybe, partly why it comes last. I don't know for sure what God had in mind, but I'm conjecturing that maybe it comes last because it makes explicit the principle that we've seen in other commandments prior to this. The principle that God wants us to obey him in our actions as well as in our heart. And so we learned in this series, right, that when you say don't murder or don't um, steal or don't commit adultery and those kind of commandments, ultimately they go down to the very heart and not just the outward actions. And so the 10th commandment, coveting, kind of helps us understand that this is really ultimately, all of these are matters of the heart. And so you see the verse on the screen, verse 17, and it lists some items that might have been typical for an Israelite to covet, okay? Your neighbor's house, your neighbor's wife, um, male or female servant, ox or donkey. Uh, You know, in that culture, an ox or a donkey was a valuable thing. And so, uh, but what about today? Now, you know, this is only an illustrative list because that last phrase in there kind of blankets everything else. He says, whatever else belongs to your neighbor, don't covet that either. So whatever you can put on the list, it still applies. So what I want to do today is, is look at this and, and see for a second how this might apply in our in our culture, in our time today. So um, let's update it a little bit. So he says, you must not covet your neighbor's house. Well, that's kind of easy because we all live in homes and everybody always has, And so what would that look like today? What kind of thoughts might that evoke for us today? Um, Man, you know, they sure have a lot of nice stuff. You ever think that about somebody? I'm so tired of living in this neighborhood. We live in such a dump. Why can't I have a house like that one I see on HGTV, right? Or how about you must not covet your neighbor's wife, you know, you ever look at someone, you say, you wow, she's really attractive. Why can't my wife keep herself up like that, you know? Um, wow, I, if only I'd married somebody like that, then I would probably be more happy right now. Or, or it works both ways. It's not just guys, you know. I mean, you could say, women, you could say, wow, look at her husband. He is so good with the kids, and he can fix things, right? And he's, he's really helpful around the house. You know, why am I stuck with that guy that I ended up with, right? <laughs> I, I'm, not, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular here, guys, Okay. <laughs> Or how about male and female servant, ox or donkey? You know, that's a little bit harder to apply in our culture today because I've never had a neighbor who had an ox or a donkey or a servant. But, but think about it like this. You think about maybe your car. You think, man, my car is such a beater. Man, that's not fair. I, he's got that car and I got this thing. Or you could think about, man, all our friends take these great vacations all the time, and they're posting the pictures on Instagram, and, and, and we're, lucky, we're lucky if we have enough money to get to grandma's house, you know, up in Logan, right? That's our vacation, our dream vacation. We're going to go to Ogden this year. <laughs> woo Or, man, you think, man, I've got such a loser job. I wish I had her job. Or how about this one? I wish my kids were more like their kids, Right? You ever flip that around, too? What kids, you go, I wish my parents were more like her parents, you know? I've got such lame parents. She's got all the fun parents. And why can't my parents be like hers? Or then, you know, anything else. He says, anything else that belongs to your neighbor, that could cover a lot of things. You might th- think, man, I wish I was smart like him. Or I wish if I, my life would be so much better if I was as pretty as she is. Or, you know, why can't I get a normal family? Or... You know, why can't I be as strong or as athletic as my friends? Okay, I heard that out there, right? So that's the thing about being a smaller campus, right? You know everything that's going on in the, you know, so I know there's a family that's going to have to start attending the 1130 service from now on, you know, because they've kind of been exposed this morning, right? You know, I'd do anything to be as popular as he is or as she is, or, or why is everything in my life so hard when everybody else has it so easy, you see, when you, th- when you start to break it down like that, you see that coveting is really epidemic in our society, right? It's like we commit this sin all the time, but those attitudes are the farthest thing from what God's best is for us. And actually, they, uh, they will alienate us from God if we practice you know, those heart attitudes. So what I want to do is draw out with that in mind, understanding that, that commandment a little bit now, I want to draw out some principles that would apply this for us today. Three things. What we really see here when we think about coveting, we realize that sin starts in the heart, right? It teaches us something very important about the nature of sin, that, that I don't first sin when I tell a lie. Or I don't really first sin when I take something that belongs to somebody else or when I curse using God's name. No, that sin is birthed way before the action, That those sins start, they certainly have consequences and they matter, but they really start in our heart. So look at uh, James chapter 1, it kind of plays this out for us. In James chapter 1, verse 14, temptation comes from our own desires, which entice us and drag us away, and these desires give birth to sinful actions, and when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So the Bible's saying we have these desires that come from within. And make no mistake, those desires are sinful and includes all kind of things pre, uh, prohibited by the 10th commandment. Now, I know we talk a lot in, about how temptation comes from the devil, you know, or it comes from outside of ourselves, and that's true, but but he's saying here that temptation also comes from within, and we should not minimize that. It comes from within our own desires. And what happens, he says, is that we, we let these these things kind of grow in, in our hearts and they start to get momentum and they start to get life and, and then they get their hooks in us. They entice us. And when, when he talks here about dragging us away, then that's, that's really a, a fishing metaphor. If you're a fisherman, you, you know what he's talking about because it's when we bite on the hook, we take the lure, we bite on the hook, we're stuck and you start to reel us in, right? And, and the, the, the sin starts to to drag us, to, to pull us in a direction that maybe we didn't really think we were gonna go. And so the result ultimately then is those sinful desires give birth to sinful attitudes. So f- for example, here's just an illustration of how that might work. Maybe you start coveting your friend's house and you wish that they didn't have it, but that you had it, all right? And, so, and then what comes on the heels of that is maybe then you start being judgmental of them or you start bad-mouthing them because you're bitter about what they have that you don't have. Or, or maybe then you start getting on your spouse, and it becomes a, a, an issue between you and your spouse because you can't, you're not living in a place like that, and how come he didn't get a better job, or, or she didn't go to work, or whatever it might be. And then, then So maybe then you start cheating your employer, or cheating your clients, or cheating on your taxes in some way to get a little bit more money so you can have that thing that you've desired in your heart, and you see that you've committed now a whole range of sins by now. And he says those sinful actions give birth then to, it's his death. When you let that start to have momentum in your life, it, sin starts to take over more and more of your life, and that, that leads to, to different forms of death. That's nasty stuff. And again, you can see it with kids, right? I, I, I don't want to pick on my kids all the time, but, you know, there it is. Right? You see with kids, like, when one kid on the street gets the brand new gadget, toy, gaming system, video game, what, whatever it is. Remember, I, I can remember way back, remember when all the kids had Razors, Razor scooters, and all the kids had you know NES and everything. I mean, once one kid got it, every kid in the street had to have it. No matter that yesterday they didn't even know it existed and they were perfectly content, perfectly happy. But as soon as they see other people have, and it's not even about some of these products that they're not even that great of a product, Right? It's more about other kids have it, and so I want it just because. Just because other kids say That's coveting, right? And, and we're no different than our kids. A lot of times, we're just maybe more subtle about how we live that out, or, or, or we just want to make sure that, that people don't know that we have those desires. But James says... Where it all begins is these desires within us. It begins with our covetous hearts. And so this is a great opportunity to check what's going on within. What do I really desire in life? What do I really want more of in life? Because your desires are going to tell you how you're doing with God. Am I happy with my friend's success? Or am I jealous about it? Did It make me bitter. Do I focus on what I don't have? Or on what God has blessed me with? Am I all caught up trying to get what other people have in life? Or am I caught up trying to pursue God and and to live for him and his purposes for me? So that's the first thing. We see something about the nature of sin that it really begins within. And then the second thing we look, we see in this passage, is that coveting means that you're never happy with what you have. Right? That's kind of the, the basic idea. It's the endless desire for what you don't have. That's the very essence of it, that you want more. And you're not happy with with what you've been provided. And so you want what your neighbor has. You want what your brother has. You want what your best friend from high school has. So coveting shows up in the world in a lot of different ways. Let me just mention three of them. First of all, it shows up as an insatiable attempt to get more, right? You gotta have more. Americans always seem to want more. This, I think coveting is what drives the economy to a certain extent, right? The consumer economy. We always want more. Do, do you ever make enough money? And how much would be enough? Do you, is your home good enough? Is your car good enough? Is your phone good enough? You know, when is it, enu- when is it enough? There was an episode, Malcolm Gladwell, the, the author and social commentator, has his podcast called uh, Revisionist History. And in one episode, he interviewed the president of Stanford University. Okay, Stanford University, great university, has an endowment fund of $22 billion. Billion with a B, right? $22 billion. That's a lot. And so Gladwell asked the president of Stanford, he said, would you ever consider just recommending that someone give their donation to a different school or a different cause, whatever, because you have enough? And the president of Stanford University said, no way, no way. I guess there's always a project where you need another billion, I guess, to, to fund that, right? But how much is enough? When will we ever have enough? And if you feel like you never have enough, that could be evidence in our heart that, that maybe we're guilty of violating the 10th commandment. And then this, a, a second way that coveting shows up, manifests itself in our world, is it's an unwillingness to part with what you have, to give up what you have, so like, Sometimes God will nudge your heart, right? He'll, give, he'll kind of prompt your heart and just, and just kind of nudge you with a little conviction that you should give something that you have away to somebody who doesn't have it, right? Does that ever happen to you? How do you respond? When you, when you sense that, how do you respond? Do you just walk right by and don't make eye contact with the Salvation Army guy? Or are you just like stuff it underneath and forget about it and start thinking about something else? Well, how we respond to that shows something about our heart, right? This stuff that we we taught our kids, right, and we were taught as kids, that always be willing to share your toys, share what you have, be willing to, to help other kids when they need it, but as adults, we're often not any more willing to put that into practice than we were when we were kids, and our parents had to make us do it, right? So are you willing to part with what God has given you in order to help others, or is your focus on how much more you want to gain. Now, this is interesting. Different studies have shown this same fact over and over and over again. It's really an amazing fact. It keeps showing up all the time that the less people have, the more likely they are willing to share. Right? That seems a little bit counterintuitive, right? But studies have shown over and over again that poor, poorer people have give away a higher percentage of their assets, of their income, than richer people do you think the richer people like you know they got plenty they got way more than they need why don't they give more of it away but that you'd expect that to be the case but really poorer people give away more than richer people do as a percentage of their income so an example of this there's a after 9-11 you know that changed our nation in some ways a pastor friend was at, at a conference a pastor's conference over in Africa and um participating in that. And this one poor church in Sudan, you know, Sudan is not known for great wealth, right? And these Christians in Sudan came to this conference with a, bringing a cow. They wanted to donate this cow to the people of America to help them in their trouble. Wow, you know, by comparison, we have so much. We have so much, but how willing are we to hand over to others what god has blessed us with and so that's the second way that coveting shows up that first it's an insatiable attempt for more second it's an unwillingness to part with what you have and then the third one just briefly is a constant grumbling over what you lack and a displeasure over what you have so we all have that person in our life right you probably know this person who like is always quick to explain why everything they have just stinks well let me ask are you that person You see, all of this adds up to a life of discontentment. Take a look, again, in the the book of James, how he addresses these heart issues. In James chapter 4, verse 1, he says, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Does that sound a little bit like your last family reunion? <laughs> but seriously, just wait till grandpa dies or that rich aunt you know, who doesn't have any kids. Wait till, wait till that person dies who has some, something to leave behind and then watch the quarreling begin over who gets what. I've seen it many times in my life and in my ministry that a funeral or the time around it turns into a fight because people start lining up for what they think they should get and what they don't have and what they don't want somebody else to get instead of them. But this just isn't just about families. It's about relationships in the church as well. And so he says, when you're possessed by this jealousy that James is talking about here, then you're not happy for others. You're not happy for what they get. You don't think they deserve what they have. In fact, I think this is one of the very best tests to find out how much your heart is rooted in coveting or uh, really, it's really a really good test for discontentment. And that is this, how do you respond when somebody else is blessed with more? Maybe more than they have, but the even bigger test is when they have, get more than you. How do you respond to that? You know, um, when somebody else gets a raise or a bonus at their job and in your job, you didn't get anything. Or when somebody else pulls into the church parking lot with this brand new mega giant truck, you know, with all the bells and whistles. Oh, I see somebody looking around. Okay, all right. How did you respond when they drove up like that? Okay, or how did you respond when somebody else posts on Instagram their pictures of their fabulous vacation they just got back from? Are you happy for them or are you jealous of them? You know, I like, if you know... If you know me much, you know one of my hobbies, I like to ride bicycles. And recently, just uh, this last week, a friend of mine told me about a brand new bike he got. Okay, it's a beautiful bike, man. It's a great bike. And my first thought was, that's not fair. I know how much you make. So that how in the world, you know, I I know what you make. How How did you get that? My second thought was kind of judgmental. And so it took me a minute to move from coveting that bike to move to being just kind of judgmental about his, his financial decisions to finally I got to the place where I was really glad for him and, I, and how much he would enjoy that and what a blessing that, that bike would be for him. But it took me a minute at least. Thought, man, that, that's kind of how it works. That's a test of whether coveting or discontentment is in our heart when God blesses somebody else. So here's what I'm saying. If you're not content with what you have, it's a good sign that you might be guilty of breaking the 10th commandment, right? And so what do we do with all this? What's the answer? Well, ultimately, the keys to overcoming coveting, when, we ha- when it's happening in our heart, there's two things commitment uh, i'm sorry contentment and generosity the two keys to overcoming coveting in our lives how do we win this do we just stop how do we stop our hearts from doing it right cuz it it just seems like it's going to it just kind of flows up and wells up within us how do we stop that well do you just stop looking at people's instagram feeds do you just stop watching hgtv well, actually, that might help, okay? That might help because things like that fuel our discontentment for, for, what we, uh, for what we already have. But here's the thing. The real answer is not external, it's internal, right? Because the real problem is not external. It's not about the circumstances. The real problem is internal. And we start winning over coveting when we put into practice these two principles from God, contentment and generosity. So contentment, to start with that. That's the attitude that's the exact opposite of coveting. Because if you're content, if you're content, you don't covet what other people have because you're happy with, with what God has given you. A content person understands everything you have comes from God, that God is wiser than we are, that he knows best, that what God has given us is good, and he knows what is best for us. He's going to be good to us. He's going to provide for us. When you have that framework, that helps you to overcome coveting. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6 says, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. So one of the greatest, most satisfying, most positive places to be in life is to be a person who's following God and who's content with what God has given you in life. Talk about a flourishing life. You're pursuing God. You're going full circle in your life with God and at the same time you're happy with God what God has given, with happy, with God's goodness, with God's provision. And he says that's great wealth in itself. That's great wealth that most people have no idea. Most people do not even begin to understand that kind of wealth. Well, let me point out one important thing about coveting and contentment, okay? That you might assume that coveting is more prominent among poorer people because they actually have less than other people have, and they might feel the need more acutely for what other people have, because they're, they're living in maybe with more lack. But coveting happens at every economic level. There's never a place where you say, if only I had this amount of money, then I would no longer ever covet. Right? You could have a bank endowment of $22 billion, right, and still want more. So coveting can happen at any financial level. There's never a, a, an amount of money that makes you safe. But on the other side, then contentment can also happen at any economic level. You think, man, if only I had this much money, then I'd finally be content. But people with much less are content. We saw that in the illustration from Sudan and the cow, that that contentment doesn't have a, a financial floor. And neither does generosity. That's the second quality that we need to overcome coveting is generosity. Contentment is the attitude and generosity is the way of life that goes with it. The the practice that goes with it. So the best way to fight that hunger and that craving for more is actually to give more away. I know that sounds backwards, right? That sounds very counterintuitive to many of us. But the more you give away, the less you desire. The more generous you are, the less you tend to care about money, and the less grip it has on you, and the less you worry about it. Now, I have found that to be consistently true in my life over the years. The times when I've cultivated generosity, I've had less care, and less worry, and less coveting. But it's also a principle that's expressed in the Bible here in 1 Timothy 6, just a few verses down. In in verse 18, he says, tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share it with others. So God tells us here what to do with our money. Can he do that? Sure he can, right? And he tells us, he says, I want you to be generous with it. Be givers with it. And he says, if you want to set your heart on being rich, here's a kind of riches that you should go for. Here's the kind of wealth. He says, go and be rich in good deeds, good works. If you really want to be rich, go be rich in, in helping others and giving to others. And through that, then we, we start to receive his contentment. So I want to encourage you to be generous. And, and also, as Eric mentioned, I also want to thank you today for being generous for those of you who are living a generous lifestyle thank you and thank you especially as you've included alpine church in that generosity because your financial contributions to alpine church help people in need in our own community and around the world and the money that you give to alpine church helps people pursue god and it helps us to launch new churches in places in some of the most neediest places Uh, around that need the witness of Christ in their neighborhoods and your giving helps us reach more people with the love of Christ here even in our own neighborhood even here in Brigham City now giving to your church is not the only way to be generous by a long shot and God honors generosity no matter which direction you give it Um, but if you're a Christian and if Alpine is your church home then there then it makes sense to be generous within your church as well okay and again, Missions Week, what a perfect example of that. And we, we just highlighted some of the different ways that, that you can be involved with Missions Week coming up and what a difference that makes, what a huge impact that makes. And so thank you for participating in Missions Week in one way or the other. But I just want to say, don't just, don't just leave generosity to once a year. Right? It's not just a Christmas thing, right? But it's a lifestyle, it's a way of life. Because here's what's happened. Not, not only will... God, use your generosity in the world around us to feed children and help refugees and plant churches and all the rest. Not only will God do that in the world around us, but God will use your generosity in your life. He'll use it to change your heart from covetous to content. Now, you might think that this kind of extravagant trust in God is a bit naive or maybe you're wondering, like, okay, can we really count on God to take care of my financial needs? If I become generous, if, can I really count on God to provide the things I need? Is he going to come through? That's a very fair question. And I think there's a lot of evidence that lines up to say the answer to that question is yes, that God will. That you can be content, you can be generous, because, because God really will provide. How do I know this? Well, first I know it in my own life, in my own experience. I've never seen God not provide and, and, and he's led me to have the privilege of being able to, to be generous in many ways. But more importantly, I know it biblically because of the cross of Christ. You know, we talk today about all the, a lot of the things that we want and covetings about what we want and even the things that we think that we need. But the greatest thing that we all need is to be reconciled with God, with our creator. And the Bible says each one of us has this problem. The problem is called sin. Sin is any time that we go our way instead of God's way, time we fall short of God's standards, it's when we fail to do what God tells us to do, or it's when we do what God says not to do. Or as we've seen today, it's when our thoughts and our motives and our intentions are out of step with God's character. And so we're all guilty. The Bible tells us that our sin separates us from God, and that's a scary place to be. That's not where any one of us wants to be in this life, and certainly not in eternity to be separated from God. Well, Jesus came to pay the penalty for our sins. That's why he was born that first Christmas. That's why he went to the cross. His death paid in full our sins of every kind for those who trust in him. And you know what? In that action, the Bible says, that's how God demonstrated his love for us. That's how we know God will take care of us, that God will provide for us because he made that sacrifice for us. He paid that price for us and in that he left no doubt about his love and his care and his provision. We doubt God's care. We just say, look back to the cross. We go, oh yeah, oh yeah. And so I wanna encourage you to trust him today. Trust him with your life. Trust him with your eternity If you're not sure where you stand with God, then come talk to us about that. There's no more important decision that you could make in life. But here's what I'm saying. When you look at that and you see how much God has done for us and how much he loves us, that we see, man, I have every reason to trust him with everything else too. I have every reason to be content with what I have and to be generous with what God has given because I see his incredible love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy to us that you demonstrated through the cross. And as we come, man, it's a, it's a great time of year to think about this message because we're looking around, we're thinking about people are buying stuff right and left. As we give gifts and we receive gifts. And there's so much commercialism right now, God, in our culture that we're to, we're, we feel those, uh, those desires. We feel those those. Intentions within our heart to say, I want more, I want more. And so God, help us to be content. Help us to be generous. We need you to change our heart, change it from the inside out, we pray. In Jesus' name, for his honor and glory, amen.